If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let's pray. Our great and heavenly Father, thank you for this Lord's Day where we can come to gather to worship you together as God's people. I pray that as we look into your word, we would have receptive hearts to it, that we would be open to being corrected by your word, and that you would guide us through your Holy Spirit so that we may live godly and honoring lives before you. In today's culture, when somebody is caught in a wrongdoing, in a moral error, there's two ways that they will often be treated. One is that they will be canceled. We have cancel culture now, and they will be rebuked, they will be cast off, and they will not be taken seriously ever again. We can see examples of that, of famous people and all the controversy coming out about the people who are on Epstein's list recently that came out. Another way that people end up dealing with being exposed for sin is they try to sweep it under the rug. They pay people off so that it's not being brought up. They sign NDAs so that nobody brings it up. My wife and I and my sister-in-law just finished watching a show on Netflix called Fool Me Once, and one of the main characters in this uh, show is a family who is rich and powerful, but they're also doing some shady stuff. And what they do when they get exposed, they just pay people off so that it all gets swept under the rug and nobody knows any wiser. But as Christians and in the Christian life, we don't take either of these approaches. We don't just cancel people, but we also don't sweep our sin under the rug. And in our text today, what we're going to see is that we have an alternative way to deal with the problem of people who have been caught in sin. In Galatians, Paul is addressing Gentile believers who think that by obeying the Jewish ceremonial laws, they are going to find themselves righteous with God. He's addressing these sorts of people. And just before our text, he is telling the Galatians what types of lives they should live. Not lives that are slaves to the Jewish ceremonial law, but lives that are through the Spirit and putting to death the works of the flesh. He's calling us to live according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh, but doing so is not going to be living according to the ceremonial law. It's going to be living by the law of Christ. And when we get to our text, now that he has told us how we ought to live as Christians, living out the fruits of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control— what do we then do when we encounter a Christian brother or a Christian sister who is failing to live as we ought to as a Christian, who is caught in transgression? And what's likely is the case is that the Galatian believers in the Galatian church were prideful in how they would rebuke people who did not live up to their standards of moral conduct. They would not have humble spirits. They would have a spirit of 
condescension towards their brother when their brother was caught in sin. So we see what Paul says in verse 1. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now he speaks here of catching someone in a transgression or someone being caught in transgression. If we think about how is it that people are caught in transgression, there are a number of ways that people end up getting caught. Sometimes they keep it in secret. They try to keep it in secret, and then someone catches their sin. It's exposed in some public way. We know of an example of Carl Lentz, the pastor of uh, Hillsong in New York, who had an affair with his wife, and eventually it came to light. But suppose that no one ever had caught on. Would he have kept it a secret? Maybe. And maybe lots of people do have these secret sorts of sins. Maybe not to that level, but secret sins that they're waiting to get exposed, but they don't want them to be exposed. But another way somebody could be caught in transgression is maybe it's not a secret sin. Maybe it's just a sin they're openly doing and people see it and they're caught in a transgression. Or another way they might be is that they expose themselves. They confess to another Christian or they confess to a pastor or to an elder. There's different ways that we can catch people in sin and we should be careful in how we approach someone whichever way that we find them being caught in sin or transgression. Paul here says that if we catch somebody in transgression, and if any of you are reading from the King James, I think a few of you will be, even though most of us here are probably using a more modern translation. In 1 John 3, 4, sin is defined as transgression of the law. Your newer translations will say sin is lawlessness, but I like the phrase sin is transgression of the law. And Paul here says that sin is, or being caught in transgression. What is sin? It's transgression of the law. And what law would that be? The law of Christ, as we'll see later in our text. And so if you catch someone who is caught in transgression or sin, Paul calls us to restore them in gentleness, not in harshness, not in crude words, not in anger, but in gentleness. There are some cases where we might find somebody who is caught in sin and it's repeated sin and it's unrepentant and restoration doesn't seem possible at that point. We see that in 1 Corinthians 5 when one of the members of the Corinthian congregation was apparently sleeping with his in-law, his mother-in-law. And Paul says to them, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's verses 4 and 5 of 1 Corinthians 5. And Paul there is thinking that we need to cast this person out, but the goal is always restoration. Even there, the goal is restoration, so that man may be saved on the day of the Lord. But in other cases, Paul gives better examples for us of restoration in gentleness when the sin has not gotten so grave and so unrepentant and frequent that there's a gentleness in restoration. In the letter of Philemon, Paul is writing to Philemon, and he is writing on behalf of Onesimus. And Onesimus had tension with the congregation. 
and Paul is advocating that Onesimus would be restored to them, that they would accept him as a brother, as Paul's son in the faith. And Paul is even willing to take on his debts for him. He's willing to be self-sacrificial so that Onesimus may be restored. And another example, Paul with his companion, John Mark. John Mark was likely the author of of the gospel that we call Mark. He was later a um, companion of Peter, but he was earlier a companion with Paul. And Paul, early on in his ministry, had some tension with Mark that we read about in Acts 15, verses 37 to 40, where it says, Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with him one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia, and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. So there was this tension between Paul and John Mark. But later in Paul's ministry, he's writing to Timothy. And he says to Timothy, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful for me for ministry. Paul reconciles and restores his relationship with Mark, and he's setting an example of what he says in our text here in Galatians of restoring after transgression and sin and in a spirit of gentleness. Now in this verse, in verse 1, he goes on and says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Whenever we see someone in transgression, we have to remember that we too could be tempted to the very same transgression that they're committing. We're not immune to this just because we catch someone doing it. It doesn't mean that we too won't fall. Maybe we have been consistently walking in faith, but we too can be tempted. And so part of this restoration in verse 2 we see is bearing one another's burdens. And by doing so, we fulfill the law of Christ. Now, in bearing each other's burdens, there is a sense in which we bear each other's material needs. We help some Christian brother move or with some uh, necessary help that they need in their life. But there's a more specific context in what we're reading since we're reading about transgression of the law. We're speaking about bearing with each other's burdens of sin. When somebody sins, it creates a burden for the church congregation, especially when it's a public sin. But we are to bear with each other's sinful uh, tendencies and do so with gentleness and love. Um, Paul expounds on this more in Ephesians 4, in verses 1 to 2. I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love. And in the text uh, that Scott read earlier as our scripture reading, in the first three verses of Romans 15, Paul says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves, lest let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So in our walk as Christians, we are to bear with each other's 
sinfulness, to restore each other, but also to be willing to walk along each other as we encourage each other into maturity in Christ. And by doing so, we fulfill the law of Christ. And what is the law of Christ? Well, the law of Christ is the law that Christ gives to the apostles to love God and to love your neighbor. And this in itself is a summary of the whole moral law. It's a summary of the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments is a summary of all that we are required to do as Christians in living according to Christ, in following Christ as he lived. So being under the law of Christ means we are no longer under the law of works, under the ceremonial law. We are under a law of Christ. We are a slave to righteousness, as Paul says elsewhere in Romans 6. We are to live the law of love, and that should be our main approach when approaching those caught in transgression. And so in verse 3, Paul warns us that if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. This is just a prideful attitude to have, to think that, well, I'm going to rebuke somebody for their sin as if I would never commit that sin. I would never be guilty of that. It's a prideful attitude. You are thinking yourself to be something when we all know outside of Christ, we are nothing. We are fallen. We are depraved. We are prone to sin. And so we should not have pride or think we are greater than another Christian, and we should not deceive ourselves. Now, if any of you have played golf, you will know that golf is a game that can instill pride, and it can also instill humility, and those things can change shot by shot. You can hit one very good shot and think you are the next PGA Tour star, and then the next shot, you're about to quit the game. Uh, I was playing in a scramble tournament one time, and there was a closest to the pin contest, and one of my playing partners, uh, it was a par three, he shot the shot two feet from the hole, he won the closest to the pin. And so we get up to the green, and he says, don't worry about this putt, you know, I'm going to make it, don't worry, don't even bring your putters to the green. Of course, he just completely misses the shot. So all the pride he had just went right away. And it's the same way in the Christian life. If you are walking in faith and you don't examine yourselves and you don't see much sin in your life, well, you're probably going to think, well, I'm not going to fall. I'm not going to commit the same sin that that person did. And then you do commit that sin, and that should humble you. So we should always walk in light of the fact that that next sin could be around the corner, just like the golfer has to be aware that a bad shot is right coming up. So when we approach our life like this of arrogance and pride, it invokes a response from unbelievers of, I don't want to go to church because the church is a bunch of hypocrites. And part of us living like this, living as if we have it all figured out, that we are living in perfect obedience, and it's the unbelievers who are in full of sin, it can seem very hypocritical and not in a way that is going to be appealing to uh, the unbeliever. But in another sense, all of us hold ourselves to a standard, and the unbeliever holds themselves to a standard that they don't live up to as well. So the fact that we as Christians have a standard that we uphold and say is the ideal that we ought to strive for as Christians, and we don't live up to it, is not hypocritical, and it's not something that should drive 
unbelievers away from the church. But if we do approach it in pride and uh, arrogance and self-conceitedness that we live up to this standard on our own and we will be condescending to those who don't, well, then we're committing this spiritual pride that Paul is speaking about. So our pridefulness can actually be a detriment to the gospel. But as Paul says, we are to encourage, to correct, but do so in love. And by doing so in love, we are fulfilling the law of Christ. And this is what Christ says, that we are going to be known by our love for one another. In John thirteen thirty five, Jesus says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So through fulfilling the law of Christ, we will undermine this objection that we often hear from unbelievers. Now, how do we prevent this, this pridefulness that can come from seeing someone caught in sin and wanting to correct them? Paul says in verse 4, But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Now, in verse 1, Paul called us to watch ourselves, and here is he calling us to test ourselves. These are two sides of the same coin. He is telling us to examine our lives, and he's telling us to test our lives so that we may be walking in holiness. As Paul says in Philippians 2, verses 12 to 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We should be working out our salvation, testing ourselves, seeing if we're walking and living in the faith, and doing so with fear and trembling, not with pride and arrogance. And while this text here tells us that it calls us to boast in ourselves and not in our neighbor, because we are the ones performing the work. But we never should also let that be a means by which we can justify our own pride in our own work. It is God who works in and through us to perform these works of holiness as we live in a desire for obedience. So as in Jeremiah uh, 9 verses uh, 24, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. And Paul, quoting this verse in 2 Corinthians 10, said, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Even though it's not our neighbor who's going to boast in our work, if we boast in our work, let us boast in the Lord for his work in us. And the reason why we ought to test ourselves is because, as verse 5 says, for each will have to bear his own load. Now, bearing your own load means you have to take responsibility for your actions, He's not contradicting the second verse which we read, which calls us to bear each other's burdens. We are to bear with each other's sins, and you are to hold each other accountable as Christians. But nevertheless, each one will be tested by his own works. And part of your own works is going to your Christian that you see in transgression and correcting them in love. Everyone will be tested by his own works. Those who do well, who live out the fruits of the Spirit, 
while not justified by those works, those works show that they had a true and living faith in the Lord. While those who live in fruits of the flesh, works of the flesh, they will be judged accordingly. And so Paul speaks about us being tested, and we have to examine ourselves and test ourselves, and we should do so in things like we did this morning when we partook of communion. We ought to examine ourselves before we partake of communion. As we take of communion every two weeks here, we ought to be in a regular practice of examining ourselves, of testing ourselves, so that we know that we are walking in godliness. And in that way, when we approach our fellow brother or fellow sister in Christ, we may do so in a way that will build them up, encourage them, and rebuke them in love so that they may live a more godly life. So the first thing by way of application is that when we approach someone in sin, use it as an opportunity to reflect on your own trespasses. Maybe you have not committed the sin that they've committed, but you may have committed something similar. If you just go through the Ten Commandments or go through the Westminster Larger Catechism on the Ten Commandments, you'll always find something that will expose some sin you have committed, whether in thought, word, or deed. While it may not be exactly like the one of the person you caught in transgression, it gives you opportunity to reflect. Paul does this as well to the um, the, the righteous uh, people. He is the self-righteous people he's talking to in Romans 2 in verses 21 and 22. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? He is taking the thing that the person is using to rebuke someone else and then asking them, don't you also commit that? Always use these cases as an example for self-reflection on your own walk. We also ought to approach the person with patience and genuine concern for their spiritual well-being. Don't approach them with arrogance or haughtiness. As I talked about earlier, in cancel culture, there's definitely a self-righteousness that comes with it. Look at what this person did. We're going to cut them off from the face of the earth so that their whole career is ruined and that they have no real hope for their life. But here we ought to approach them with concern, not so that they would be separated from the church, but that they could be fully within the church body as a fully privileged member of Christ's body. So don't do so with arrogance, as we know that can turn people away. If you've ever tried to correct somebody, maybe parents have tried to correct your children, and you do so out of arrogance, they might not respond so well. If you have a coworker that you tried to correct, and you did so condescendingly. Typically, people don't like to be told condescendingly what they're doing wrong. They like to have constructive criticism or at least the sense that you genuinely care for their well-being, and much more so in the Christian life. If we have genuine concern for the spiritual well-being of our fellow Christian, that will encourage them to take the instruction. 
And also we ought to remember the rule that we have from Matthew 18, that if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Catching someone in transgression doesn't mean exposing them on the internet or on social media or gossiping about them among your group of friends or among the church body. It means going to them one-on-one and correcting them in that context. And if they don't respond from that, bringing one or two others. And if they don't respond to that, then bringing it to the elders. We ought not to expose someone's sin openly when it doesn't call for it. Love covers a multitude of sins. And applying the law that Jesus gives us to love your neighbor as yourself, we can also rebuke your neighbor as you would wish to be rebuked. If you are found in sin, think of what would encourage you to turn back to Christ. Now do that to those who you catch in transgression. So we ought to get rid of our spiritual pride, restore others in compassion and love. And by doing so, we fulfill the love of Christ. We bear with their burdens of sin. And in doing all of this, we are giving an image in the Christian body of what Christ has done for the church. We are burdened with sin. We have all been caught in transgression. And if you think you haven't been, and no one has ever caught you in a transgression, well, God has caught you in a transgression because you can sin even in your heart and your thoughts. God knows all things that we do, and no one is immune from sin. All of us fall into sin. We bear the burden of sin, and the ultimate burden of sin is death. But Christ bore the burden. He bore with us in love the burden of our sins. And so when we bear the burdens of our fellow brother and sister, we are portraying what Christ has done for us by bearing the burdens of our sin on the cross. We are trying to restore somebody when we correct them in love. We are trying to restore them to the church, to the Christian family. And when Christ bore our sins, he restored us to God. And so through our interactions with Christians, encouraging them to walk in godliness, we are showing the world what Christ has done for us. And so if we are caught in transgression, we have hope that we are not ultimately and finally canceled from relationship with God but we can be restored to God because Christ has taken our burden, our heavy burden of sin. And Christ offers us a different burden. He offers us a light burden. Christ says to us, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, our great God, 
Redeemer, and King. Thank you for Christ's work on the cross that he bore our burden. He took our transgression and it was laid all upon him. And your wrath was on him, the wrath that we deserved. I pray that as Christ has done this for us, we would be willing to bear with the burdens of each other's sins. All of us will fall into sin, and I pray that we would have the heart of Christ, of love, of compassion to one another, so that we may restore each other to not just one another, but to you, to living a godly and holy life before you. In Jesus' name, amen.